One of the hardest things I have faced recently is looking at the face of my children and knowing that in their lifetime they're going to suffer profoundly. And some of that will be self-inflicted because we have a sin problem in our lives and we do foolish things or rebellious things and there's consequences at times for that. And some of it will be because someone else in their life will hurt them because hurting people hurt other people. But some of it will be that peculiar type of suffering where as hard as my children will try to correlate where the pain is coming from, there will be no obvious answer. Have you been there? Have you ever gone through suffering and deep down you knew this isn't my fault and it's not simply explained by the fault of someone else. There's mystery in it. It feels undeserved. It feels uninformed. And in those moments, it feels like God disappears. Like you can't hear his whisper. You can't feel his presence. He it feels as if he's abandoned you. And there's nothing in life that is more certain than the simple fact we will all suffer. And that is true for followers of Jesus Christ, just as it is true for those who do not follow Jesus Christ. In some ways, when we choose to follow Christ, we're signing up for a bit more suffering because we're saying we want to pour our lives out for other people and love like Jesus loves other people and Jesus went to the cross to show his love. And so that template is an invitation into seasons and times of suffering. This series is personal for all of us because all of us will suffer. It's just the way of the current world that we live in that is broken by sin, and there's some mystery in it. And my prayer for you as we go through the book of Job, it's pronounced Job, not Job, that we would simply raise our suffering intelligence. You've heard of emotional intelligence, people who kind of understand their own internal emotions and can have high-skill relationships, and we know IQ and EQ. Well, there's a suffering intelligence. In other words, do you have a biblical grasp of where suffering comes from? And here's the thing. When we suffer, what is our first response? to ask why, isn't it? Why me? Why now? Why him? Why her? Why us? Why this? Why God? And that is modeled for us in this ancient lyrical poem, the book of Job, the, the story of a man who is clearly living an upright, God-honoring life, the story of a cosmic court scene, between God and all his spiritual ambassadors and courtroom staff, and one called the adversary that is traditionally or literally translated Satan comes forward, and God is bragging about this, this one individual, this, this human named Job. He said, have you ever seen anybody like him? He loves so well. He's so obedient. He's so faithful. And the adversary in a traditional ancient courtroom was supposed to tell the king something maybe he didn't want to hear, you know, because ancient kings often had people around them that were always saying, oh, yeah, exactly, whatever you say, buttering them up. And so the adversary says, he doesn't love you. He loves your stuff. He's in it for the perks and the protection. You treat him like a pet. He, you spoil him. 
I guarantee you, if you took all that stuff away, all the good stuff that you've given him, God, then he would curse you to your face. It's quite an attack on a sovereign king, a God, who is so proud of his loving, faithful subject. And whether we think it's fair or not, whether we're surprised by this or not, in our modern sensibilities, we read in the book of Job that God actually permits this experiment. He said, all right, you can, you can mess with this guy, but don't hurt him, the core of him. Protect him. And so there's a succession of things that are taken away from Job. Let me, let me read the text for you as it will set up the next few weeks. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless, as Job one, and upright. He feared God, he shunned evil, he had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So he's got everything an ancient patriarch wants. A big, loving family, and a bunch of 401ks that are full to the top that come in the form of the hoof variety roaming around. He's got a lot of uh, livestock and investments. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So he, he so cared about being right in a relationship with God and his kids being in a right relationship with God, he got up after a party early in the morning and just interceded on behalf of his kids. Hey, if they've done anything to dishonor you, God, would you please forgive them? It's an impressive guy. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, that means accuser, the accuser also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And here's, here's the line, it's verse 9. It's what Satan responds. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the works of his hand. And you're so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse God to your face. As a side note, this is a painful accusation, right? Have you ever been kind of used in a relationship? This happens to a lot of women in our culture, where a guy shows a lot of interest, and then he finds out that, that the woman won't, won't sleep with him, for example, and won't move as fast or whatever, and all of a sudden, all that friendly interest, he's gone. She wasn't being loved, she was being exploited. Or, or this happens in the business world. You know, someone who's really excited to meet you and they're friends with you on LinkedIn, and all of a sudden, like, you're not providing the right contacts to them, you weren't really loved, you were networked, right? And that's what Satan is saying to God. He's saying, Job doesn't actually really like you for you. He's interested in what you can do for him. And if you stop doing the right things for him, if the paycheck doesn't come, if the health and wealth and blessings and prosperity runs out, he would curse you 
to your face. It's kind of a painful thing to say to somebody, especially the God of all the universe. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's son and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servant to the sword, all the servants. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties. They swept down on your camels, made off with them. They put all your servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of their house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. That's a sign of ancient mourning. Then he fell to the ground and he worshiped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart, which is a really fascinating line to quote, saying, I didn't come into this life with all these blessings and family members and good things and jobs and strength and health and all of it, and and I'm not going to depart that way. And so in a sense, as painful as this is, I, I can't ultimately claim that this was all mine. And then he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the Lord, the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. That's interesting. He's saying God is implicit in what has happened here. At some level, he's allowed this. Even if he didn't cause it, certainly he allowed it. If he's sovereign, it's not like God is the the force and then the the emperor Palpatine is the dark side and they're really well balanced and they're fighting this out. It's no, God is in control on the throne. At best, Satan is a little gesture that is trying to prove a point and God allowed this to happen even though he didn't initiate it. And so I'm going to worship and praise him. This begins, Mercy Road, an incredible piece of literature where Job will go back and forth from this type of response to suffering where he says, ultimately, it doesn't all belong to me. I'm going to worship you anyways, even when it doesn't feel fair, even when it feels like you've disappeared. But then he'll step back into, God, what did I do to deserve this? Come on. He gets really honest. And he's the model for how we are to grieve. And that's what we'll be looking at for the next few weeks leading up to Easter. If you're taking notes, the first point has really been made. We will all experience times when it feels like God has disappeared. I'd like you to get personal for a minute and think about what you would write on a note card if you were to be asked, what is a time in your life where you felt like God disappeared? Maybe someone was unfaithful to you in a relationship. Maybe you lost someone too soon and it was a tragic accident. Maybe you were fired from a job and you really didn't feel like you you deserved to be fired from that job. Maybe you were treated unfairly or bullied as a child and you felt like, I don't think that this is causal. It's nothing that I've done here to deserve this. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. 
and I'm going through this, and where are you, God? We will all experience that, and we don't exactly know why, but Job gives us some mattress handles to understand this a little bit better. You know what a mattress handle is? Have you ever tried to move a mattress for a friend? And it didn't have a mattress handle? You're like, you're just squeezing this mattress up the stairway of an apartment building. Bless the man or woman who invented those little handles to go on the side of mattresses. And that's what we're trying to do theologically. Here's, Here's the thing. When we ask why, why God, why us, just like Job will go on in the letter to say, why, why? Most of us mistakenly answer with either moralism, and there's lots of terms that, are, that mean the same thing here, but moralism is probably the most popular term for it, or cynicism. Do you know what moralism is? Moralism says, if you are suffering, it's your fault. If you would have just been good enough, or better, or more religious, or more faithful, then you would not have been suffering. Moralism taken to the extreme is seen in world religions throughout. Um, Hinduism is probably the most severe and heartbreaking version of moralism. The idea of cycles of rebirth and the, the concept of karma, that whatever you've done in your previous lives is really causal and, and the reason that you are experiencing suffering now. This is why there's a class of people called untouchables in India to this day that are only allowed to work with sewage removal and just the worst jobs who are often exploited and abused. And the line of thinking in Hinduism or some forms of it goes like this. They did something terrible in the past and so they're purifying themselves. This is punishment for them. And if they do a good job in this iteration of life, maybe they'll come back in a little better shape. And so don't show compassion to them they need to work that out themselves. And it's kind of a horrifying thing. And and in the West, we tend to look at that as really just backwards. But don't you see that we do this too? Don't you see that this slips into Christianity? Haven't there been times in your life when you have looked at the suffering in your own life or in someone else's life, and that that thought came, I bet this is because they have a secret sin, or maybe this is due to the thing I never never apologized, or I'm... I did that thing, and this is probably God just squishing me or squishing them. This is moralism. Moralism is an exhausting way to live. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. If you go rob a bank after church, like just smash up an ATM machine and grab all the cash, and you're on that little video camera, and the authorities come for you, and you have to do some time in jail, That's not moralism, that's just cause and effect. That's just consequentialism. That's like sometimes we reap the actions of what we have sown. The Bible says, God will not be mocked, you're going to reap what you sow. So if if you go to the gym every day, you're gonna get in better shape than if you go to the ice cream store every day. You know, there are some consequences for our behavior, but Job is an exception to the, the proverbial talk about consequences because it would appear that he has nothing really that he has to apologize for. God goes out of his way in the beginning of this book to say he's upright. He's doing everything right. Is he perfect? No, no one's perfect but God. But look at him. He's a standout, obedient, loving guy. And God still allowed great, 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 uninformed and undeserved suffering to to, to be unleashed in his life. So we either answer it through moralism, which is a wrong answer, if I'm not being clear enough, or through cynicism. 
What is cynicism? I remember I would take convoys in Iraq through, uh, there's a route Irish, it's a very dangerous road in Iraq, the highest percentage of IEDs, improvised explosive devices, and you could always tell the cynics, and you could always tell the moralists. The moralists saw that I was a chaplain, and they'd try to jump on whatever car, whatever vehicle I was, because in their mind, it's like the chaplain's holy, he's a good dude, there's no way God's going to let that that particular MRAP get blown up, and so we'd be really tight in there. There's a lot of moralists just hanging out. Hey, chaplain, you want to say another psalm over us? You know, God's not going to let anything bad happen here. And then the cynics, they're like, I'll get in whatever one. It doesn't matter. It's all random. It's a crapshoot. Cynics are people who say there either is no God, or if there is God, he's not very good at his job, or he doesn't really care about me in particular because tsunamis happen, and there's all sorts of random suffering, and what in the world? That doesn't look like a good God is in charge, so I'm just going to get pretty cynical, fatalistic, and just say, whatever. It's all random. What's fascinating to me is you can be a moralist that starts to get a really hard heart, and you can be a cynic that starts to get a really, really hard heart. So if those are the wrong answers to the question why, what, what are the right answers? Well, before we jump right into that, we need to get one thing straight. If you're taking notes, the second point is this. God does not delight in evil and suffering, but he does allow it. We've alluded to this. Did you notice in the scripture from Job that I read, the story did not start out by God saying, have you guys seen my servant Job? He's amazing. But you know what? I have a nagging feeling he's only into me for my stuff. So I'm just going to start throwing lightning bolts and fire. And actually, if I could delegate some suffering to all of you guys, no, no, that wasn't God's idea. That would have been Satan's idea. The accuser, the liar, the manipulator. It was Satan, not God, that caused and brought the suffering. And Satan wants to prove that Job only loves God for the protection and the perks but what's interesting is God allows Satan's scheme, but did you notice he limits it? You can do this, but not this. You can go this far, but not that far. Why would he limit it? In my experience, true monsters who just want to inflict pain on other people never limit the pain. There's no limit that they would go to. But people who are in a position like, I don't know, a parent who has to discipline a child, a warden of a prison who has to run a correctional department, they will have to impl implement some suffering, some pain, but they will always limit it if they're good, if there's any goodness in it. So this is important for us to understand because if you have grown up thinking that God loves delights in your personal suffering, you need to hear me say very clearly, not me, the Bible, you are wrong. He does not. And if the Bible is, is right when it says he's like the very best parent, how could it be anything else? I just said, one of the saddest things in my life is knowing that in an un of suffering for my children. 
and God knows that suffering will be a part of our journey, but it will play a purpose and it will be limited. He allows it, but he limits it. I think it's probably important at the beginning of this series to admit another thing. We will never know with exact satisfaction and fullness why God allows suffering. There is no perfect answer to the why question. In some ways, that's because we're like an ant trying to comprehend the internet, you know? Like, we just don't have the faculties from our point of view to get that. And, and this shouldn't be a surprise to us. I mean, imagine if you had a time machine and you could go back even just to the 1800s and you showed, like, your iPhone to somebody. It would just, good luck explaining that to them. Well, what, what do you mean? Well, why does it light up? Well, it's a circuit, it's electric. What do you mean? What is Hulu? Well, I don't get that. So you just look at this little box, and how does that work? And it's connected to a satellite? What's a satellite? So this is just a few hundred years ago. In our own continent, we would be completely unable to express the subtleties to, to somebody who probably has a very similar IQ than we do. How much more removed are we from the God who always was, always is, and who is the source of all wisdom? So there is mystery in that, and yet... God is a God of mystery, but not of confusion and disorder. So he allows us, through the book of Job and other scriptures, to get some mattress handles. And to that end, why would God allow undeserved and uninformed suffering? It's kind of easy for me to understand why he would allow the kind of suffering that is corrective, right? Years ago, they didn't know uh, how leprosy worked. Leprosy is this disease where people lose fingers and parts of their body, and they just thought they fell off due to some sort of infection that, that was internally caused. But as science and medicine progressed, we've come to learn that leprosy is a real disorder, but it's a, it's a pain disorder. It's a disorder where you stop feeling your body. And imagine how dangerous it would be if you lost complete sensation in your hand, and now you're cooking eggs, and you've kind of rested your body weight on a burner that's on and you're smelling what is something cooking, but it's not your eggs, it's your hand. So the idea with leprosy is you can't feel, and so you're constantly wounding yourself, and then over time your body gets infected and, you know, amputations happen or, or limbs fall off, and it's just a horrible thing. And so if we really understand the point of leprosy, we should understand that some pain is actually God's mercy in our life. And I think we've all experienced that at times, where we've had a dysfunctional relationship, and it gets painful enough where we're now no longer willing to live in the pain, and we're now willing to have a conversation that we're afraid will be painful, but we reason to ourselves, it's more painful not to have the conversation, so I'm going to have the conversation, right? This is good pain, the pain of redemptive transformation when we do something that's rebellious and we experience some consequences. And God's real gracious, I think, in most of that. I think he could give us a lot more consequential pain. I think he, at his bottom, is mostly grace. He wants us to avoid consequences for consequences' sake. He just wants us to know how to grow and transform and be more like him. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm asking, and Job's asking the question, why would God allow undeserved and uninformed suffering? A lot of people, when they'll call me and they say they have a cancer diagnosis or something really terrible has happened, they'll say something like, 
if I could just know how this fits in the larger purpose and the plan of God, if I could just know why this is happening to me, why she died, why this happened, then I think I could bear the pain. I remember the first funeral I ever did. I was in California, and it was a two-year-old little boy, only child of two parents, a soldier, just gotten back from deployment, spent six months with this little boy that he just cherished and loved. I don't remember his name anymore, but I remember at the funeral, just this heartbreaking, heartbreaking display because this little guy used to make the touchdown sign. He'd watch football with his dad. And so whenever he got excited, he would just go touchdown. And so we, the pastor uh, that I co-officiated the ceremony with closed by saying, everyone, let's, let's do the touchdown and sub- celebrate this little boy being in the arms of Jesus. And, and, and I got where he was going, but in that moment, it's just like, I wasn't even a parent yet, but the tears are just, I can't do the touchdown sign. This is going to just break me. And I'm in uniform and just sniveling, and I'm not going to be very good at funerals. This is terrible, right? It was heartbreaking because when I had sat, sat just earlier with that couple that morning, they said, I just want to know why. He was only two. Why can't we have him? Why wasn't I paying attention? Why did that car hit him? And I, of course, could say nothing because there's no real answer for that, except for maybe. One answer that says, it's not your fault. You ever remember that scene in Goodwill Hunting between Robin Williams and Matt Damon? I, I looked it up. I was going to show it in a video. There was some colorful language, so it didn't work. But, but essentially, this broken young a uh, young man comes to this therapist, and he's had a horrific childhood, was abused, and they're not making much progress in the therapy room, but, but Robin Williams, who, interesting to look back now, was a man who had his own demons and depression and things, so how, no wonder he was so good at portraying that helpful wounded healer doctor, but he, he basically switches his tactic in the therapy room, and he just keeps saying the same thing over and over to this Matt Damon character, saying, it's not your fault. And you can see Matt Damon just kind of bristles at that because he's believed his whole life it must be my fault. And he said, it's not your fault. And then the tears start to come. And he must have said it like 20 times, it's not your fault. And eventually they have this real moving moment where they're standing and now he's embracing him and he's just saying over and over, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. As you read through the book of Job, at least in the early sections, he has some miserable friends <laughs> that basically try to comfort him. And they start by saying, it's not your fault. But then they quickly change their mind and they're like, no, nah, I think it might be your fault. <laughs> but as you look at the whole context of the book, it's very clear. Even though God never tells him, Job, it's not your fault, the simple fact remains, it's not Job's fault. Job did nothing to deserve the severe punishment, and and I need you to understand that this might be true in your story. Sure, there's some things that you are going through or have gone through, and it was your fault. It's just kind of obvious, right? You you contributed to that, probably more than you. It takes two to tango and be dysfunctional. But there are some things that have been done to you, said to you, that you've experienced that are really, really damaging, and you need to hear, maybe God say gently to you today, it's not your fault. That wasn't punishment. This is, this is hard. I teach this stuff 
I give sermons like this every few years. I understand the theology pretty well, but I had to sit in a therapist's room and kind of admit to this therapist at the VA and say, some of the stuff I saw in Ward, I just feel like really sad that God wouldn't have protected me from that. And so I've really been struggling. Is it somehow my fault? And he had to tell me, do you think it's your fault? I said, I don't know. You see, when, you, when you're struggling to know if it's your fault, you need someone else to say definitively, it's just not your fault. It's not your fault. And maybe for some of you, that's really all you need to hear today. When it comes to undeserved suffering and suffering that is uninformed, that combo, we just are left asking, why would God use it? So here in closing are a few ideas. It's not definitive. It's not going to satisfy that question fully, and we'll get more into it in the series, but, but in the last few minutes, let's look at this. Undeserved suffering can reveal if we are a moralist, a cynic, or a person who actually loves and trusts God. This is one possibility that God allows this mysterious type of suffering to be in our lives because at the end of the day, you know it's true. The only thing that will really show you if you really love God for God and not his toys and his protection and his goodies and the good relationships he allows you to have and the good health he allows you to have, the only way you would know that is if you didn't have that, if one of those were removed. The only way you could actually validate this claim bouncing around your head that you believe you could trust God even in the dark is to be in the dark for a little bit. There's been seasons in my life where I, I was just very certain that I was further along than I actually was, that I loved God just for the good that God is in and of himself, and God took away a part of my health or a part of my safety or comfort or, or uh, stability or preferred job or whatever, and then I was forced to admit to myself, you know, Mike, I think you're turning into a little bit of a moralist. I think, I think you are approaching God and saying, it's pretty simple, God. I do this right. I do this right. I do this right. Now you owe me blessings. I think you are falling into a very transactional relationship with the God of the universe, and you're forgetting that he doesn't need anything from you. You're not like a subcontractor on a project, and he really needs you to do a good job. He's God. You could get it done like that. He just wants a relationship with me and with you. And so he wants to release us from the moralism or the cynicism. Sometimes I've seen Christians who appear very mature, and when tragedy strikes them, their very first reaction is, see, God's not real. He couldn't be real. God doesn't love me. If, he, if this happened, how dare he let this happen? How dare he mess with my kid? How dare he mess with my health? How dare he mess with my plans? How dare he let my life go in a very different direction than I wrote the script for my life going? How dare he call me to this ministry? He can't be trusted, so it's just, you know what? I'm going to take a break from church. And a break becomes a few years and a few decades. And then in a coffee conversation later on with some friends at Sunday brunch, church comes up, and that cynical hardness comes up. Like, you know, I used to be into that church stuff. 
the end of the day, though, it's a crapshoot. I mean, if there's a loving God, how can you let all that happen? I mean, come on, guys. Let's just go back to brunch. Let's leave religion and politics for other people to talk. Sometimes, I believe God uses unexplained tragedy, or he allows it. Remember, he's not causing it. He's not scheming this up. He allows it because it's the one thing that will reveal the true condition of our relationship with him. And he doesn't want us to waste that. And you see that throughout the book of Job. Job's constantly saying, nope, here's the right thing I'm supposed to say. And then his heart wells up and he says, but this isn't fair. Are you kidding me? Like, I, I got up early and did my devotionals every morning. I prayed for my kid. But then he goes back and as that pendulum swings, it grows him into just a, a deeper worshiper of God. Another possibility, why would God allow undeserved and uninformed suffering in the human race? It can develop empathy and the ability to love other people who are suffering like nothing else can. A friend of mine, I was chatting with him recently, and he has a kind of a um, active leg syndrome where his like leg jerks in his sleep. And it keeps him up, and it's real problematic, but he's been able to manage it. But he went through a season where it got worse and worse and worse, so he was only getting like three hours of sleep a night, and that was probably interrupted REM cycle. And if you've ever struggled with sleep, and you, you go a few days, and then a few days turn into a few weeks, and then a few months, and you start being the shadow of your former self, and you can barely function, all of a sudden what, what can happen, and what did happen with him is severe anxiety started to pop up. And we, we experience this on the micro level all the time. If you, you're having a hard time falling asleep and you look at the clock and you're like, it's daylight savings time. I lost an hour and it's already midnight. I'm going to be so tired. Maybe I should skip church. Right? <laughs> but then you get anxious about not being able to fall asleep and then anxious about skipping church. And then the anxiety just kind of builds on itself. And then when we get more sleep deprived, anyways, long story short, he said to me, this has been an odd gift because now he's kind of gotten it under control with the medication. But then he said, I think for the first time I'm realizing that I really had no tolerance for people with anxiety, debilitating anxiety. I kind of thought that they were just weak. Now, part of his profession is to help people with debilitating anxiety. Can you see how God would want to cure that of him? a judgmental spirit of people who struggle with debilitating anxiety when part of his vocation is to help people with debilitating anxiety. So is he being punished for that? I don't think so. Does God lay awake at night and think, maybe I could make a really weird disorder that makes people's leg jerk and it would keep them up all night. And then over time, I could just kind of artfully make this guy so anxious that he'll have to admit, no, I don't think he does that. But I think he never wastes any elements of brokenness in a suffering and broken system. Maybe for you, the thing you're going through right now that's mysterious and you, you're just, you just can't know, you don't know why it's there, maybe one silver lining is simply that God is going to make you a more empathetic person, a more loving and understanding person who's able to be a little less critical, a little bit less of a know-it-all, and a little bit more of a learn-it-all. Another, and maybe the most powerful theory that I think theologians have as to why God would allow undeserved and uninformed suffering is simply this. 
undeserved suffering is how God redeems the entire world through Jesus Christ. God voluntarily suffered evil to, de to defeat evil and suffering. I'll say that again. God voluntarily became a human being and he suffered willingly the worst kind of evil so that he could defeat ultimately and eternally all evil and suffering. I mean, if you're really judging Christianity from the outset, about 2,000 years ago, and you're saying the claim is this guy is the Messiah, the rescuer, and he came and he's going to restore everything and he's going to fix the broken relationship between human beings and God, and he's getting himself killed and he's getting nailed naked to a cross, and now they're just making fun of him and taunting him and they just stabbed him in the side. Now he's like dead, dead. And all of his scattered followers, half who have betrayed him, are just demoralized. You would have to call Christianity a suffering that has plagued all the human race, including Job, if that's the solution, pretty weak one. But look what God did with that. He used the worst that Satan could dish out to solve everything. He used resurrection. He used the very worst, most painful piece of undeserved suffering. And you see this Jesus is limited in his knowledge. Somehow, I know that's a mystery. It's a mystery to me, but you read it in the Gospels. He says, Father, if there's any way I can do something other than being tortured to death and separated from your presence and punished undeservedly, please. And then he says, but, but even though I don't understand, not my agenda, your agenda. And so he marches faithfully to the worst of death. And even on the cross, he... he, he quotes the Psalms. He says, Father, why have you forsaken me? I mean, let that sink in. Are you really going through it right now? And you're saying why? Consider that the very God you're crying out to, why are you allowing this? He allowed himself to be put in your exact position, but even more severe. And he cried out, why? Why does God allow suffering and evil? We'll see in the book of Job as we continue through this series. There are potential theories, and even more than theories. There are some questions we just don't We know at least this. He loves us. He must. He didn't sit idly on the sideline, watching all of human history suffer. He joined us in the most profound suffering there is. I'll end with this quote. Is God somehow responsible for the suffering of this world? Yes. In this indirect way, God is. But giving a child a pair of ice skates, knowing that she may fall, is a very different matter from knocking her down on the ice. That's Philip Yancey. Where is God when it hurts? And I think you will find, and I will find as we go through this series, that suffering is inevitable. Sometimes we'll suffer and not know why, but God is actually going to use that to grow us and to redeem the entire world in a real sense he already has. Let's pray. Gracious God, this is not easy stuff. And anytime we talk about the kind of suffering that's uninformed and undeserved, it brings up some really painful memories and emotions. 
can almost feel like being re-traumatized. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would just tenderly soothe every person who has engaged with this teaching and, and, and this word from Job. We pray, Lord, for wisdom as we walk through these next few weeks. Would you increase our suffering competency? Would you show us how to not just constantly try to avoid all kinds of suffering, but, but to embrace the right kind of suffering for your name? Would you release us from ways of thinking that are just wrong, impressions that we've had for many years about you that are just not true? Thank you that you love us so very much that we can't even comprehend it. This is mysterious to me, Lord. And yet, Lord, we trust you. Thank you for being the God who suffered in our place so that the suffering we're going through now ultimately, eventually will end. We so look forward to that day, God, when every tear is wiped away, when there's literally no more suffering. There's only celebration. May that day come quickly, Lord. Walk with us in every moment in between. In Jesus' name.